It's not up there yet. Hey. Hey. There we well, as, as Pastor Dave said this morning, I would echo his words and say thank you. It's been an honor to stand here and have this privilege. I consider it a once-in-a-lifetime deal here that a guy from literally, not even figuratively, literally halfway around the world gets to come and share the Word of God, what God has put on his heart. And I, I don't take it for granted. It's, a, it's been a huge blessing. I've been encouraged by your words. I've also been encouraged and strengthened through Pastor Dave's teaching as well. I think I caught him off guard a little bit. Dave, Pastor Dave Heisterkamp is known to be a, a bit of an intense guy, right? Kind of know him as one that's intense. And so I, when he came back to the room after the first morning that he spoke, after I'd spoken the day before, I said, I, felt, I feel like I'm like the energizer, bunny, hyper energy uh, kind of guy, and you're the, like, the wise, slow, sage type. And he's like, I've never heard that before. <laughs> but that's how I feel, and it's, I, I'm blessed. We really are blessed. So thank you. We're not done. We got one more. But thank you. By the way, if you have spoken to me about those, um, that little list of the fruit of the spirit those that we talked about on Sunday and you have not received one I know there are a couple people still out there I have copies with me I purposefully didn't put them on the table out there just in case they'd be taken and the people who came up and asked me earlier didn't receive one so if you'd like one you could come and see me afterward and I would have one for you I have about 17 left so Matthew chapter 9 Matthew 9 We've been home for a month, right about now, as a matter of fact, just before the very, very end of June, we traveled back to the States, and we will be here for the better part of a year, probably go back next June. When we come back to the States, uh, you would think that when, when we get on the airplane and we're preparing and to come back to the States to spend some time in the United States after spending four to five years in Thailand... Um, people miss their family, they miss their friends, and we're going to go visit churches. And we, you would think we would miss that the most. We don't. We miss American food. <laughs> and so when we're, on the, when, we, when we're packing and we're on the plane, we're talking about what's, what's the meal that you want to eat? When you hit the ground, what's your first meal? What's what you really, really want? And different people in the family will say different things. My wife will say something like, I just want some Asian place because I don't like American food. <laughs> but the rest of us, no, I'm kidding, she likes American barbecue. We'll talk about our favorite meals. If I have a choice in the matter, sometimes I do, sometimes I don't. If I have a choice in the matter, my first meal on the ground in America is a good steak. A good steak. And in Thailand, you can get a good steak, but you're going to spend a whole lot of money for it. And it's not worth it. It's not worth it. So I can get a really bad steak for really cheap, and it makes me wish for really good steak when we get to America. I also, you can, you can get ice cream in Thailand. We have Dairy Queen. We have Baskin Robbins. But we don't have those little creameries out in the middle of nowhere in dairy country and places like that that are open, sometimes only in the summertime. That, those things I miss too. I miss food, American food. 
And you may not be surprised to know that for myself and my kids, when we come to America, there's a certain type of food that we really don't care to eat. And that might be what? Thai food. Someone said salad. <laughs> I like salad. <laughs> We really don't want to eat Thai food. And it's not because it's not available. In fact, over the years that we've been in Thailand, there has been a Thai restaurant that has opened up not one mile from my dad's house in Elyria, Ohio. Our first furlough, we come home on furlough, and my dad tells us about this Thai food restaurant, this Thai restaurant that's just opened up. We're like, yeah, Thai food. So we go there, and the owner is a Thai guy. He's been in the States not that long, and his staff are Thai people, probably his relatives. We sit down to that meal and we're, oh yeah, Thai food. And we're starting digging in one bite. And we're like, I don't know what this is, but this ain't Thai food. <laughs> and so now when we go back, we haven't been back in years, but when we do go back, it's not really to eat the food, it's to chat with this guy that we've developed a little bit of relationship with over the years, to, just to talk to him, not to eat his food. <laughs> because there's just something missing. There's something missing in this guy's food. And we find that true just about everywhere we go when we're trying to find good Thai food in, in America. It's better just not to go because there's always, always something missing. This is a very familiar passage to us all. If you've been in a missions conference any time in your life, you've probably studied and you've been preached at from this passage of Scripture, Matthew chapter 9, verses 35 through chapter 10, verse 1. They're not new verses. They're familiar verses. But I have to tell you, it is remarkable how many times I've read these verses over the years in my life and I've overlooked something completely in them that I believe, and I don't think this is pie in the sky either, I believe is the missing ingredient to reaching the loss for, the, for Christ around the world. Let's look at Matthew chapter 9. As we read Matthew chapter 9, verses 35 through chapter 10, verse 1, I simply want us to ask the question and answer the question tonight, what did Jesus see? So let's look at Matthew chapter 9, starting in verse 35. It says this, And Jesus went through all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Then he said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. And he called unto him his 12 disciples and gave them authority over unclean spirits to cast them out and to heal every disease and every affliction. These are familiar verses. What did Jesus see? And what is Nate Beckman going to present to you that I hope doesn't sound like pie in the sky tonight, that I believe is the, mission, the, the missing ingredient to reaching the lost for Christ? What is it that Jesus saw when Matthew writes in these verses, he goes to every town, every village. What did he see? He's literally been everywhere in Israel now. And every place he goes, what does he do? He goes into every town, every village, and every place he goes, he heals every sick. Any person that's brought to him is sick, he's healed. When there's a demon possession person brought to him, that person is healed of their demon possession. Everywhere he's go he goes everywhere, every town, every village. Matthew goes out of his way to say so. 
He's been everywhere. He's seen everything. And everywhere he's gone, he's healed. He's welcomed. Grace has poured out of him. And then we read in verse 36 what? When he saw the crowds, he had compassion on them. He saw something right here in these verses. He saw something that moved him deeply. In fact, the word he had compassion on them in the original is a word that I'm not a Greek scholar, but this is a word that you're going to understand very quickly. He was moved in his viscera. What is viscera? Let's take it down to every day. He was moved in his guts. What Jesus saw as he goes to every town, every village, every synagogue, everywhere where there are people who want to see him, he goes and he goes to these places and he sees something and literally, friends, literally what he saw made him sick to his stomach. What did Jesus see that caused these emotions to come up that made him sick to his stomach as he goes to every town, every village? By this time, everyone in Israel knows who Jesus is. Now it's a matter of choosing, am I going to believe or not believe? What is it that he saw that made him literally sick in his viscera, in his gut, sick to his his stomach? What is it? First thing I'd like you to notice there as we keep reading, he goes, he's, when he sees the crowd, he had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. He saw a hopeless humanity. In Jesus' day, the words that Matthew used to describe what Jesus saw are incredibly descriptive. The words here in my translation says harassed. Literally, that word harassed literally means skinned, flayed, laid open, helpless, harassed and helpless. That word helpless literally means thrown down, thrown down by force, completely dejected. These people were skinned, not literally, spiritually skinned, flayed, laid open, helpless, thrown down, beat down like sheep without a shepherd. What did he see? He saw people who were highly religious. This is the era of the synagogues. And synagogues would have been absolutely everywhere. Jerusalem itself is said to have had hundreds of synagogues. This is the era of the scribes, the Pharisees, and the Sadducees. This is the era of the law of Moses, plus 600 more laws added to that law of Moses called the Mishnah. In verse 15, if we were to back up, Jesus alludes to his death. He knows he's going to be killed, yet he's moved with compassion, literally sick to his stomach over the condition of these very people. In our day, as you look at the words of Matthew and you think through what Jesus really saw and how Matthew describes very vividly, descriptively, the situation, the condition of these people whom Jesus is meeting every single day as he goes to every town. Matthew goes out of his way to say so. Every village, every synagogue, healing every sickness, every disease. As you look at these words of Matthew, could this not have been just as easy, easily written in our day? A couple years ago, I was reading Time magazine, and they came, had a poll in that particular magazine that said, this poll found that Americans are the unhappiest they've been in 50 years. 
Would that surprise any of you? It's no secret. It's no secret that people are hurting deeply and feel hopeless, dejected, flayed, thrown down. And they're looking for answers and frankly, places that won't give them answers. So here's my question. Is this the missing ingredient to which I refer? Is this the missing ingredient to world evangelism that we just, we the Christian community, we just don't meet up, we just don't see, we just don't interact with hurting hopeless people on a daily basis? I don't think so. What did he see? Right after it says that, we keep reading. After he sees they're they're harassed, and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Then he said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful. What did he see? Before I want to give you what I think this answer is, I want us to do a little deductive or inductive study, even in the book and other places in the book of Matthew. In Jesus's day, when Jesus says, when Jesus says, the harvest is plentiful, what does Jesus see and what does Jesus mean? One commentator says it this way. When speaking about the great harvest, he's talking about this great harvest, he interprets it this way, and I quote, by this metaphor, Jesus intimates that many of the people are right for receiving the gospel. Is that true? We're Jewish people. We're the Jewish people that Jesus is coming into contact with every single day in every town, in every village, every synagogue. Were they just ripe? Were they just ready and waiting to receive the gospel message? Again, in verse 15, Jesus is just alluded to his death, meaning he knows that these very people are going to do what? They're not only going to reject him, they're going to kill him. So he knows he's not going to only go through this process. In the end, rejection's coming. Death is coming. So is what this writer, and maybe sometimes what we think about that when Jesus says the harvest is plentiful, does that even match the emotion of sadness and being upset to his stomach that we see in verse 36? When Jesus says the harvest truly is plentiful. What about other places in Matthew where this metaphor of harvest is used? Matthew chapter 3, verses 11 and 12, the, book, the words of John the Baptist. Do you remember what John the Baptist said when he was talking about a harvest? What did he say? John, uh, Matthew chapter 3, verse 11. I baptize you with water for repentance, but he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I'm not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will clear his threshing floor and gather wheat into the barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. That's a metaphor of the harvest. What about another metaphor for the harvest in Matthew as well? How about Matthew chapter 13, starting in verse 37? In his explanation of the parable of the weeds, here's Jesus' explanation. He answered, the one who sows the good seed is the son of man. The field is the world. And the good seed is the sons of the kingdom. The weeds are the sons of the evil one. And the enemy who sold them is the devil. The harvest is the end of the age. And the reapers are angels. Just as the weeds are gathered and burned with fire, so will it be at the end of the age. 
The Son of Man will send his angels and they will gather out of, king, out of his kingdom all causes of sin and all lawbreakers and throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their father. He who has ears, let him hear. What did Jesus see when he spoke of the harvest, friends? If we're going to compare it with the same metaphor and other places in the book of Matthew, what did he see that made him sick to his stomach to make him say this very thing? I believe, I believe he saw a day of this right here. Separation. Separating the wheat from the tares. Separating the saved from the unsaved. Separating the one who has accepted Christ from the one who has rejected Christ. For what purpose is that harvest? For what purpose is that day coming? It's for a purpose of separation. For the purpose of what? Judgment. When Jesus, he's upset to his stomach. He's sicked in his viscera. And he says, the harvest is plentiful. What is he saying? He sees ahead. What does he see? In this context, in Matthew, Jesus really saw people's lives hanging in the balance. He has, in effect, offered them what? He's offered them the kingdom, and they are on the verge of rejecting both king and kingdom. Quite honestly, friends, Jesus is not looking at something fun. If it was fun, Jesus wouldn't have been sick to his stomach. This is not a summer missions trip. This is more a picture of rescuing, rescue the perishing than bringing in the sheaves. In his omniscience, Jesus sees a day of judgment. In his compassion, he wants no one to be there. In his justice, Jesus must judge the sinner. In his compassion, he desires to pronounce guilt on no man. It's easy to read past these verses and think, I see this harvest, and think, oh, it's just all good. If we compare it with the other metaphors or uses of harvest in Matthew, friends, it's not all good. What about our day? 7.84 billion people on the globe means that if Jesus returns today, the harvest of judgment is greater than ever. Asia, where I live, the most unreached area of the world. Eight out of ten Asians don't even know a Christian who could share the gospel with them. We're in trouble. But again, I asked the question I asked a moment ago. Is this the missing ingredient to world evangelism? That we just don't see the vastness of those heading off to judgment and eternal punishment? Do we not see it? I don't think this is the missing ingredient. I think we see it. I think we know. What did he see? The very next words from his mouth, the harvest truly is plentiful, but what? The laborers are few. What did he see? He saw a lack of laborers. In Jesus' day, think for a moment. How sad is it 
that Jesus has to say these words at all. How sad are Jesus' words when we keep them in their context? Where has Jesus, I've gone out of my way to say this, where has Jesus just been? Every town, every village, every synagogue. What has he done? He's healed every sickness, every disease. Grace has gone out from him like never before in human history. God has took on human flesh and he touches people everywhere he goes. And yet he has to say these words and yet the laborers are few. Who are the laborers that Jesus speaks of? It's not just the disciples, but anyone who has been a recipient of his grace. He's now been traveling everywhere, preaching, teaching, healing, feeding, delivering from demons, saving from sins. And yet he has to say these very words. I can't find laborers. Those willing to plant, those willing to water the seed of the gospel. How about our day? If you have received the grace of God, the Bible calls you a laborer too. Do you see yourself as such? As it relates to world, world missions, not only is the situation already dire right now, it's getting worse. There were different mission agencies in 2020 that put out statistics of where their mission force stands right now. Baptist missions in the next 10 years we'll see more than 170 missionaries retire. ABWE in that same time period, over 200 retire, and we're not replacing those people. To make matters worse, if they could be, only 9% of new missionaries are going to unreached people groups, places where 2% or less would call themselves Christian. Only 9% of new missionaries are going to those places. We're in trouble. So I ask one, the same question, I ask it again. Is this the missing ingredient to world evangelism that we just don't see the fact that there is a woeful lack of laborers? And I think, again, the answer is what? No. I think we know it. I think we see it. So what's the answer? What is the missing ingredient Let's keep reading. We, start, we pick up in verse 38. Then Jesus says, Therefore pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. And he called to him his 12 disciples and gave them authority over unclean spirits to cast them out and to heal every disease and every affliction. What did he see? I believe he saw a sovereign solution in all of this. As bad as it is. A hopeless humanity, coming judgment, a lack of labors. Still, Jesus sees a sovereign solution. What is that sovereign solution? I think it's a two-part solution in these verses. That's why I included verse, chapter 10, verse 1. I think that's part of it. I think it's a two-part solution. Part 1 is God's people praying for more workers. Part 2 is found in verse, chapter 10, verse 1. God's enablement of the workers being sent. What did Jesus do? He says these words in the end of... In the end of verse uh, chapter nine, right? He, he, he puts out, he puts his, his heart on, further out on his sleeve. He just hangs it out there and says, this is the situation, but it's not all dire because there's a solution to it. 
The solution, the prayers of God's people and the enablement that comes from God. Because what did he do in chapter 10, verse one? He simply reproduced himself. This is Jesus's discipleship program. Here, I'm giving what I have. You go do the same thing. But I want to focus on part one, just that first part found in in verse 38. What's part one? Jesus tells his disciples to do what? Pray. But not just to pray. The word that Jesus uses in this verse right here, the word pray isn't the normal word for prayer used throughout the New Testament. Here is a different word. There's one word that's often used in prayer meetings in Paul's letters, one word for prayer. This word is different. This is the word deomai. And I'm gonna, rather than tell you what it means right away, I'm gonna read a couple other verses, one in Luke, or two, both in Luke actually. I'm gonna read a couple other verses and you tell me That same word deomai, but used a different English word. What's the word deomai in these verses? Luke chapter 5 verse 12 says this. While he was in one of the cities, there came a man full of leprosy. And when he saw Jesus, he fell on his face and begged him, Lord, if you will, you can make me clean. Luke chapter 8 verse 28 uses the same word. What's the word deomai? When he saw Jesus, he cried out, fell down before him and said with a loud voice, what have you to do with me, Jesus, son of the most high God? I beg you, do not torment me. What's what's the word? Beg, plead. That's the same word that we're using in our verse for the week. I implore you, I beg you, I appeal in begging, pleading, asking seriously. This is the word that Jesus used, asking fervently, begging, begging for what? What does Jesus tell his disciples to beg God for? Beg for what? Jesus doesn't say, beg God for the salvation of the lost, although everything about Jesus's life is about salvation of the lost. Everything that Jesus does is about salvation of the lost. Jesus here tells his disciples to beg God for what? more laborers. Friends, this at least in my own life, I believe, is the missing ingredient to world evangelism. Beg, not begging for the salvation of souls. What's the point of begging God for souls in Asia where no missionary goes? What's the point of begging a guy in Asia who will never meet a Christian in his life and asking God to save him? But begging God for what? For more labors, for someone to go there. The truth is, I'll talk about myself. I pray for unsaved people all the time. I have a group of four guys whom I've been pleading with for probably 10 years, each of these four guys in and around our church at different times. And I've been begging God for their salvation. I have a list of people like this that I pray for both fervently and frequently. But even as a missionary, I confess that I don't pray for more missionaries, none, one, nearly as often as I should. And quite frankly, I really don't beg God for more missionaries like I ought if I'm going to obey Jesus according to his word. How about you? What do you pray for? Here's what I've learned about myself 
even as being a pastor for the better part of the last 20 years. We pray for things we care about. That's normal. That's not, that's not criticism. We pray for things we care about. I'm not criticizing anyone because why? Because there's frankly, if we go to any kind of decent sized church, there's just far too many prayer requests to pray for every single every day. So we do what? We have a natural filter. We pray for what we care about. Let me ask you this. What do we pray fervently for? What do we beg God for? In my life, I fervently pray. I beg God for things that I'm invested in and affect me. How about you? So, if we are going to pray fervently, beg God to send more laborers and not be hypocritical in our prayer, what must be part of our prayer? You see where I'm going with this? If we're going to beg God, send, please, God. This area of Thailand has no gospel witness. Please, God, send someone and not be hypocritical. What must be part of our prayer? Lord, do you want me? Friend, when was the last time that you pleaded with God, not for the salvation of the unsaved person, but for God, pleaded with God to send someone to share the gospel with that person? When was the last time when seeing the condition of a particular country, a particular region, or country, or people group, where you pleaded with God to send laborers so that they would hear the gospel and have an opportunity to be saved. And have you at least asked God the question, do you want me? I started our message this evening talking about Thai food. And this really nice Thai guy who has a Thai restaurant not a mile from my dad's house in Elyria, Ohio. He's a nice guy, really nice guy. Why doesn't that owner of that Thai restaurant close to my house make Thai food the way it's supposed to be made? Why does he, why does he leave out ingredients that are important to Thai food? Does he just not want to? Why wouldn't he do it right? Well, maybe this is part of the reason. For my favorite soup, it's called tom yam. If you like Thai food and you go to a Thai restaurant, tom yam, okay? Tom yam or tom yam. In tom yam, that's, it's nice, spicy. It has all the important flavors. They're sour, they're spicy, there's a little sweet, and it just jumps out at you. It's wonderful. If you're going to buy... All the ingredients necessary to make this good bowl of tom yam soup in America. Go to the cheapest place you could go, maybe Walmart. There's something called galangal root. It's going to cost you $2.99. There's something called lemongrass that you're going to have to put in. That's another $2.99. There's these things that you put in just for flavor. You don't eat it, but it's just for flavor. It's called kaffir leaves. Another $2.99. There's going to be lime in it. A lime, a buck. You're going to have some chicken in it, about $5 worth, 
to make the right kind of tom yum soup. There's going to be shallots, another $2.99. Green onion, $1.29. Chili pepper, $1.99. Fish sauce, can't, you cannot eat Asian food without fish sauce. It's against the rules. That's going to be about 50 cents worth of fish sauce. Certain kind of mushroom, that's about $4.99. And shrimp, you get the right kind, it's going to cost you about $9.99. And then you total that all up, and the, the total is over $27 for a bowl of soup. Anyone paying 27 bucks for a bowl of Thai soup? I'm not. And I wonder, I wonder if when we see the hopelessness around us and we see, we see what Jesus saw, we understand the hopelessness all around us. We see it clearly. We know that judgment is around the corner. We know. We also know that there's a woeful lack of laborers. We know that too. We know all these things, and I just wonder in my mind if part of the reason why we don't get down and just beg God might be simply that we know the reality. And if we really do what the Bible says, what Jesus asks us to do, and beg God for labors, it's frankly more than we want to invest. Just like I don't want to invest 27 bucks for a bowl of soup. Is that possible? Maybe. We have this duty to go. That's clear. There's nothing unclear about that, but not everyone has to go around the world. But Jesus gave a command to us all, not to just pray for the missionaries, but to beg God for more laborers. And what might God be willing to do if his people prayed the way Jesus told his disciples to pray? Invest the way Jesus asked us to invest. This is the missing ingredient, I believe, to making a true difference around the world. How are you investing? Where are you willing to invest to pray the way Jesus prayed? God, help us to be the people you want us to be. Touch a heart even now, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen.